about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out his freedom. Hello and welcome back to church or welcome for your very first time. Tonight we'll be reading Genesis 3 verses 14 to 24. Here we go. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth, to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good day, everybody. Um, Let me add my welcome to Jordan's. Uh, It's really good to be with you this evening. If you're joining us for the uh, first time or you haven't been here for a while, you're coming in towards the end of a uh, sermon series on the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. Um, We're up to the end of chapter three. We've got two more sermons after this week on chapter four. Um, I want to say thanks heaps for the people who've been kind of asking great questions about this. We had a good question time, uh, I thought, on Monday night and the Monday before. Am I sounding a bit echoey, crazy? Lily, oh, that's heaps better. Well done. Okay. I don't even know what happened there. Um, You know, really fruitful time, and I, of course, didn't have all the answers to the questions, didn't expect to, um, but that's good, because the point of this series is just to kind of, you know, uh, help us to dwell again in these incredible chapters, and uh, I hope we can keep living with these and asking questions and opening up some of the discussions I've created for weeks. Okay, that's enough throat clearing. Uh, let's, let's begin. I'm going to pray again. 
Gracious God, you are indeed our hiding place and our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please teach us more of why we need that and what glory it is. Amen. What is it that we love so much about true brilliance in sport? Think of Sam Kerr's beautiful first strike on Wednesday. You saw it, right? Don't think of the second stuffed-up volley, just the first one. Or think of, any, anybody remember Harry Kuehl's magnificent left-foot volley in the World Cup about 10 years ago now? Magnificent. Or think of Lionel Messi dancing through defenders, or maybe soccer's not your thing. Think of Kelly Slater surfing, Emma McKeon swimming, Mark Waugh, anybody remember him? Think of Mark Waugh hitting a cover drive. Usain Bolt accelerating late. Roger Federer's backhand, Serena Williams' forehand. Michael Jordan flying through the air. It's not just their success that makes these figures great. It's their beauty. It's the ease and the grace with which they do these things. It's the, may that, it's the way they make these incredibly difficult things look easy and natural. It doesn't matter that it's the result of years of practice. When you see it, it's like a kind of miracle. There's a great description of this in a story by the Italian author Italo Calvino, who I just, I just really like, but he has this story called The Adventure of a Skier. And in it, there's this awkward Italian teenage boy, a snowboarder, who sees this beautiful Swiss girl in a sky-blue hood skiing, and he's just captivated by her grace and beauty. Here is what the boy reflects at the end of the story. It seemed to him that there in the shapeless jumble of life was hidden a secret line, harmony traceable only to the sky-blue girl. And this was the miracle of her, that at every instant in the chaos of innumerable possible movements, she chose the only one that was right and clear and light and necessary, the only gesture that among an infinity of wasted gestures counted. I think the reason this kind of beauty stands out so much to us is that our lives are so rarely like this. Our lives are so rarely characterized by this kind of grace and ease. How I wish my parenting, I'm a father, I've got three kids, how I wish my parenting was executed like Roger Federer's backhand or my sermon writing like Kelly Slater carving a wave, doing a you know, cutback. He's a great... I actually love watching Kelly Slater. But they don't feel like that at all. In fact, I can't think of a single aspect of my life that feels like that. Actually, most of life is just really difficult. Relationships, work, managing time, church... It's often just hard work. Things don't just come easily, but are, are very often a struggle. Our efforts are often fruitless. Most of us have had enough kind of work experience now to know this, that 
that you can, do, you can put in a lot of effort and it, and it, and it produce nothing or just be evaporated by some dumb management decision. Our efforts are often frustrated by predictable and unpredictable problems and people. They're much more of a shapeless jumble, to use that phrase from before. I think, I think sporting excellence, like other things done with the highest level of competence, I think they're captivating because they, they, hint, or, they hint at a way of being in the world where it's like things are in harmony, where things are right and clear and light and necessary. But here's the thing, maybe this captivates us, not just because we would love to be like that, but because in some deep, deep sense, we remember being like that. Because according to the Bible, this beautiful way of being in the world is not just something to wish for, it's something we once had and lost. Maybe this beauty touches on an ancient memory of being at home in the world from which we've been estranged. Well, that's the thought to take with us because this is this is the story the second half of Genesis chapter 3 tells. It tells of how, because of the first sin of the first humans, creation was, to use a phrase of the Apostle Paul's in Romans chapter 8 that I'll come back to later, creation was subjected to frustration. Where, uh, and human beings were cast out of the garden. That's what we're looking at. We're going to look first at what we... Uh, learn here in this chapter about the shape of this frustration and then we'll look at what we learn about its origin and this will lead us, I think, in the end to really appreciate the Christian hope a little more deeply. That's where we're going. Okay, so the shape of our frustration. Last week, we finished with chapter 3, verse 13, which is the woman's confession that, as she puts it, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, in response, God delivers a set of judgments and they address the serpent and then the woman and then the man in turn. The serpent first is addressed, uh, is cursed actually. So the Lord God said to the serpent, most of the verses I'll put up, but uh, they're also printed in your outline and some of them are only in your outline. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity, that just means like a hostility, they, they become enemies, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Cursing is, is the, just the opposite of blessing, but for God to curse something is terrible. The serpent is condemned to humiliation and punishment from this time onward. Now I think there are two things going on with this curse. At one level, what we see here is a corruption of humanity's relationship with the rest of creation. Um, last week, I said that in the end in the Bible, it becomes clear that the serpent represents kind of the power of evil and the devil. And that's true, and I'll come back to it. But the focus here is also just on the serpent as a wild animal one of the creatures that the man was supposed to rule. And so the fact that the serpent 
will now be at war with humanity, it also just represents a break in the relationship between human beings and the rest of creation. There is a tragic element to our relationship with the Earth's creatures now, symbolized by the antipathy, the hostility between humans and snakes. People just mostly don't like snakes, and snakes mostly don't like people. I mean, some of you might like snakes. Anybody like snakes? It's fine if you do. Like, oh, see, nobody. Oh, Caleb likes snakes. Good for you. You know, but even snake handlers, like we were in Queensland a little while ago, and we went to this reptile show, and you know, there's a handling of uh, inland uh, taipan or something. It's like the most dangerous snake in the world. And um, a kid in the crowd asked, what's its name? And he said, we don't give them names. Just had a number, N283, you know, because they bite the handlers. They don't make friends. At another level, though, the snake does represent evil. Snake represents evil. And so what we see with this curse is also the introduction of a struggle against evil into human life. The woman and her offspring will have war against the serpent and his offspring. And what that means is, I think, just that evil is going to remain a persistent, stressful, hostile reality in human life. Well, the next to be addressed is the woman. And what the Lord says to her is devastating. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So it's like the most natural and normal thing in the world for us that childbirth is risky and painful. I mean, I've, I've witnessed the birth of three humans. It was terrible. I mean, it, it turned out okay, it was quite, quite well, but it was dreadful. It was also quite dreadful for Lauren, my wife, but, you know, for me, it was appalling. No, it is a really awful pain. Like, I, I, I did not know Lauren could make those noises. Um, now, I don't want to get into that too much, but I actually think that that is a... And, you know, we've got a, a midwife or two here, and they can tell you all about this. And, and that's, like, normal and natural at one level, but it is... It's not good because of that. It's actually... It's, it's, it's terrifyingly uh, scary in some ways. And what we're told is that it is a tragic sign of God's judgment. It is a terrible, painful indicator that we live in a broken world, a world that we messed up and that has fallen from the way it was intended. The other words said there to the woman are probably even trickier, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what are we to make of those words? I think the best place to start is actually with what is simple. What we see here is actually what we've already seen in Genesis, uh, that the involvement of both the man and the woman in a single terrible decision in which they both played slightly different roles it has consequences that they have to live with. Uh, last week we saw that it produced 
you, you know, we've already seen that their relationship has been messed up. We saw that the, the man's kind of getting stuck into the woman for what she did. Here we see that it produces an ongoing sense of struggle. The man and the woman can no longer straightforwardly experience their difference as a source of joy as they did at first. It's now also become a site of real difficulty. What do we make of those words, though, about your desire to the woman and the man ruling over the woman? Well, the first thing to be clear on is that this is a judgment. This is a judgment. The man's ruling over the woman and the woman having desire for the man in this way, that's actually not how things are supposed to be. It represents a corruption, a malformation of this relationship. The second thing is to try to be clear what these two terms mean. And, here, and they're actually strange terms in the Hebrew text. Um, but what we need to notice is that there's an important passage that uses just the same terms in just the next chapter. So in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, Cain is given a warning. Now, we'll get to this text next week. It's a, 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 a really powerful and horrible story. But here he's given a warning, and, it, and God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And the, those terms, desire and rule, are the same as in the Hebrew. And I think this suggests that the desire in question here is not straightforward. It's not, it's not just a simple erotic desire. But it's something like the desire to possess, to possess or maybe even to consume, to dominate. And it will be met, we are told, with a predictable and lamentable reaction. The man will rule over his wife. Now, that does raise more questions, um, which we can't answer adequately now. Some of what needs to be said will come up in the last sermon in this series, uh, because in the second half of chapter 4, when we reach the figure of Lamech, who is the first bigamist, we see, I think, some of where this tendency leads. For now, though, all I think we can do is to just notice with, with great sadness that in one way or another, these words point to something we all know, that the relationship between men and women has frequently been one of great tragedy, a, 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 a fraught struggle for power, with men often ending up asserting and reasserting their dominance. The last to be addressed, though, is the man. His judgment is accompanied by an explanation in verse 17. Did you catch it on the way through? Uh, it's in the text there. It says, God says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Here we see that Adam bears a special responsibility as the one who was created first and the one to whom God's command was first addressed. I don't think, by the way, that this is a, a kind of his con Adam is condemned for listening to his wife at all. That's not the point. The point is that um, he's, God is saying, in this particular case, 
because of what you knew, because you knew God's command to go along with her was a catastrophic blunder. He should have stopped it. But he didn't. And so, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Notice the way the man's relationship with the earth, the ground, becomes one of struggle, a struggle that in the end the ground will win as the human body returns to dust. I, uh, during the week, one of the weird things about my job is I'm, I have this like part-time gravedigger role because there's people inter ashes in the cemetery and so every now and again I have to kind of go out and dig a hole and put ashes in it. And it's dust. Like a human being becomes dust and they return to the ground. Um, sometimes the dust blows around a bit, which is not great, but it's very confronting, actually. Gone is the ease of the garden of creation in bloom as the man tills and keeps it a home for himself. Now it is a matter of sweat and struggle, hunger and frustration and painful toil, for the ground, like the serpent, is cursed. This is striking. The serpent's curse made sense, didn't it? Because he was the instigator of all this evil. But here God's curse falls upon the earth too. It's a terrible judgment. Humanity's whole relationship to the created order is made difficult, painful. Friends, do you feel the tragedy of these words this moment? how the ease and freedom of the garden vanishes and in its place human life becomes a struggle, struggle for survival, struggle against nature, struggle against evil. And the overall effect is to frustrate humanity's ability to fulfill its calling. Remember in chapter 1, if you were here, humanity was called to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to make it a home for human life and the flourishing of God's creatures. Now every part of that is difficult. Fruitfulness and multiplication are painful and dangerous. And the creation resists human rule in a thousand ways. Its creatures attack and it, it yields what we need only reluctantly. The living of our lives well, beautifully, successfully is difficult because we live in a world that is fallen, a world that is under the judgment of God. We can easily lose sight of this because the signs of God's judgment seem so normal and even natural to us. The fact that snakes go on their bellies and that childbirth is painful and that growing food is hard and that people die. We can't imagine life any other way. And yet what we're told here is that each of these things is a sign of God's judgment, a sign that something has gone terribly wrong. The philosopher Plato had a famous 
allegory, story about people whose whole lives were lived in a cave. This is a kind of simplified picture of it. Um, their whole lives were lived in a cave and they're chained there and they're looking at shadows of what the outside world was like, shadows thrown onto a wall, um, but they were thinking the shadows were the reality. I think we have a hint here in Genesis that that can easily be us. Our whole lives are lived within a world shaped by the, the judgment of God on our sin. So that what is natural and normal to us is actually already deeply broken and damaged. But the Bible says things weren't meant to be this way. Now, we could stay these words much longer, but we also need to notice how in the last verses of these chapter, we see the fundamental reason all of this is true. We see the origin of our frustration, which is that we have been cast out of the garden. Look again what happens from verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The Lord banishes the man from the garden and the woman. The language is so strong. He banished him. He drove him out. And the entrance is sealed with angels and a flaming sword. And there is no way back. It is a picture of utter loss and finality. A decision made that cannot be unmade. The man must not, God says, be allowed to reach out his hand, hand and take from the tree of life. I think the sense here is that given what the man and woman have done, for them now to take eternal life would be a horror that must not be allowed to happen because they're guilty. And so they must be banished. I want us to feel the finality of this moment. Here's a part of a famous artwork of Adam and Eve being banished, Masaccio's expulsion. I want us to feel the finality of this, the way the door is shut and there is no way back. Feel with the man and the woman finding themselves driven away. Most of all, feel the sense of the break in their relationship with God, the way they are sent away from him, you see. They are forsaken by him. Only now, finally, do they feel the true horror of their stupid decision. We need to feel this because this is the true horror of our situation too. The true horror of our situation is, is this, we have been driven out. We have been driven away from the presence of the Lord. We do not enjoy Naturally, the friendship and intimacy with our Creator for which we were made, we are forsaken. We have lost God. But they aren't destroyed. 
The strange thing about this scene is that although it does have this sense of finality and judgment, it also doesn't. There are also these odd moments of hope and grace in the story. Did you notice them? The first odd moment is actually back in verse 15, where the snake is told that the woman's offspring will crush her head. Now, that's really interesting because, of course, we, sh we, we have no reason to expect humans to be involved in this bit, right? They stuffed up. They failed. The snake convinced them. Why on earth should humans now be expected to have any success in this struggle against evil? Why would they be the ones to crush the snake's head? This is a hopeful moment, this sign. The second moment is in verse 20. I, I didn't put it on the screen, but it's there in your outlines. Did you notice that Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living? What's so amazing about that is how positive it is. It comes straight after the curses, and then Adam's doing that, and suddenly it's like we're back in chapter 2. The man's naming the woman here, doesn't, it doesn't have any sense of him ruling over her, imposing his will on her. Rather, it has the feel, I think, of a moment of recognition, of care, of paying attention. And the name itself is beautiful and hopeful. Eve, it means life. How extraordinary. Right? Given what he's just said in chapter 3, the woman you put here to be with me, she stuffed this up. We should have expected him. He, the man named his wife Death or gullible, or folly. But he doesn't do any of that. He turns his back on that and again sees Eve as full of promise, full of hope and goodness. Wow! And the third moment of unexpected grace and hope is in verse 21, when God makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothes them. It's a mysterious moment. Where do these skins come from? But it's a hopeful one, because why should God help them like this? Why should he help them out with their sense of shame? It suggests that somehow they have a future, and that God still cares for them. And both of those things are true. Both of those things are true. That is the wonder of the good news of Jesus, which is the final fulfillment of this story. Those hints of hope and grace, they're not false hope. They point to God's purpose to save, to win back humanity and what was lost. In Jesus Christ, God the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, to win humanity back and to crush the serpent forever and to heal his broken creation. One of the most magnificent statements of this is the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Here they are. I consider, writes Paul, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Hear those phrases Paul uses to sum up exactly what we've been talking about today. Creation was subjected to frustration. That's what we've seen. 
and it was put in bondage to decay. That's the tragedy of Genesis 3. But what Paul tells us here is that none of that is final. Actually, it, it hides an incredible hope for which the creation itself, the whole earth, is waiting, quivering with anticipation. Liberation. The hope of the gospel is for the overturning of the disaster of Genesis 3. It's for the end of frustration, our frustration and creation's frustration. Listen again, I've, I've used this passage before in this series, but listen to, again to how the Bible puts this at the end of the book of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Did you catch that phrase? No longer will there be any curse. That's what we are allowed to hope for. For the final overcoming of all of what we see here. Of the ruining of the earth the ruining of our relationships and the ruining of our capacity to live our lives. And most of all, our estrangement from God will be finally undone too. We will live with him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It's an extraordinary and beautiful hope, the Christian hope. And it makes a big difference to the way we live here and now. Sometimes people think, suggest, assume that a kind of transcendent, ultimate hope like this is bad for life here and now. It, it takes you away from it. But that is, it, I just think it's simply not true. What a hope like this does is allow you to endure things that you can't make a difference to now. There are lots of things we can, let's do it. But there are lots of frustrations we can't. There is lots of pain and difficulty that has to be endured. And a hope like this allows us to be patient. Like Paul says, in hope we are saved and we wait with patience. We can live now in the midst of frustrations and difficulties in the confidence that one day there will be no more curse. We can press on in the difficulties we have with one another, the difficulties we have with ourselves, with the pain caused by power and desire, with the frustrations and setbacks and obstacles we face in our work and even in the face of the desperate difficulties we face in our relationship with the earth. We can press on in the knowledge that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed one day. And I could end there, but I need to say one more thing. Because I don't want to finish without remembering for a moment what it is that makes this hope, this wonderful hope, possible. How on earth 
Is this banishment from the garden overcome? Remember the fierceness and the finality of that moment as Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and the door is shut? That points us to the answer. Our forsakenness was taken on by another who stood in our place. Remember what Jesus says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken in that moment. Because in that moment, he stood in our place, he stood in that place of Adam and Eve, banished from the garden. He, he took that on, though he did not deserve it. Even though he had not failed as Adam had failed and as we fail, he accepted that judgment in our place so that we might be brought back. He was sent on, dreadful though it was. It wasn't just the humiliation, terrible though it was. It was the loss of God for us. And that is how the serpent's head was crushed. And that is how the power of evil was undone when Jesus gave himself up to that judgment in our place. What grace. To read Genesis chapter 3 is to be confronted with the tragedy and awfulness of the human condition, with the way our lives are lived under the judgment of God, surrounded by reminders of our condemnation, the frustrating character of our lives. It is a sign of God's wrath and of our estrangement from him. Word to hear. But if we will hear it, it will show us this incredibly wondrous hope. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.